I want you to think about a defining moment in your life. What is a defining moment? A defining moment can be a, a really, really good time. Something in your life that you look back on and you say, this is amazing. Maybe it was a time that God worked something amazing in your life. Maybe a time when you accepted Christ as your Savior. Maybe it's the birth of a child or a wedding or an anniversary. Something defining that you look back on and say, this point has a huge emphasis on the rest of my life. Maybe for you, some of your defining moments are bad times as well. Something that was hard that you went through. Something that just grabbed you right in the core of your being and you wondered if you could make it through and, and you're, you had questions about God and what he was doing and how he was going to do it. The Jewish people had a defining moment in their history. It's a defining moment that the author of Hebrews is going to tie into again and again and again. It was a time when they were lost in Egypt. They were enslaved. They had no hope, no help, no strength of their own to get out of it. And then God showed up to Moses and said, go, I'm going to use you to rescue my people. I have a plan. And so God brings them out of Egypt with all of these miraculous signs and wonders. And he brings them to Mount Sinai. And he gives them his law. His law was a description of his holiness and a description of what it meant to have a relationship with him. I think as modern Christians, we can so often look back on the law as this bad thing. Well, it's just guilt and it's just oppression. That's not the way God intended it. And that's not the way they initially took it. It's certainly not the way that David speaks about it in the Psalms. He delights in God's law because God's law was a revelation of himself. And it was really an invitation to the Israelites. I want you to have a relationship with me. And this is what it needs to look like. It was a defining moment. And every child from that moment on would have been brought up being told the stories. Let me tell you about the time that God rescued our people from Egypt. Let me tell you about the time when our people camped around the foot of Mount Sinai and we heard the thunder in the sky. We saw the lightning. We felt the earth shake. We saw the clouds envelop the top of the mountain. And our leader Moses went up there and God spoke to him. It was a defining moment. Now, at some point along the way, and this is crucial for our chapter today, at some point along the way, a tradition developed where not only did Moses go up on the mountain and get God's law from God, but somehow, some way, this tradition said, according to Jewish tradition, that God had used angels as messengers to give the law to Moses. And so not only did they have this high view of the law, and of course of God, but it was even more so because God had used, so they thought, these heavenly messengers. Now, this is not in the Old Testament. Again, this was a Jewish tradition that had developed, and the author of Hebrews is going to interact with that tradition. Doesn't mean he's agreeing with it, but he's using something that they thought of and had accepted to move them on to a greater defining moment. So imagine you're brought up in that tradition. And then this guy, Jesus Christ, comes along. Or these people, these followers of Christ, 
come along and they start telling you about this guy, Jesus, this carpenter that was born, who lived, who taught, who did amazing things, who died on the cross and rose from the grave. And and they're saying, now, this is the defining moment. Everything points to this. And you're thinking, no, I've, I've been taught something else was more important. I mean, that was the message that came through angels. That was the message of God appearing on a mountaintop. Is Jesus saying, is the gospel saying to these people, you need to ignore everything that came before? And the answer is no. In fact, what he's doing is saying, you need to understand how important it is because it points to me. But in doing so, we need to also understand Jesus is greater than those defining moments. So today we're going to look at Hebrews 1, 5 through 2, 4. Jesus is the greatest message. Will you bow with me in prayer? Heavenly Father, bless your word this morning. Open our eyes and our hearts to hear and to understand. Father, may we heed the warning to hold on to this truth. In your name, and in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, amen. We're going to look at this in two sections. The first is chapter 1, verses 5 through 14, and then we'll look at just the first four chapters, or first four verses of chapter 2. Chapter 1 finishes, after this great introduction uh, in Hebrews that we covered last week, Chapter 1 goes into a long list of Old Testament quotations, and they are all about the fact that Jesus Christ is greater than angels. And it's one of those passages that I read and I think, this is something I've always struggled with. No. And I'm guessing you probably don't struggle with it either. I've never been tempted to hold angels as greater than Jesus Christ. Now, maybe you have. I think there are some traditions out there today that speak about praying to angels, talking to angels, and I think these passages need to inform that to say, no, 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 we go to Jesus Christ. But I'm guessing most of us today, right now, might be tempted to just sort of tune out. In fact, look at chapter 1, verse 4. We'll back up one verse. So he, speaking of Jesus, became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to to theirs. And now, in verses 5 through 14, he's going to tease out that truth. Why is Jesus greater than the angels? So here's my challenge to you this morning. Don't tune this out. Okay? You might be thinking, this has nothing to do with my life whatsoever. Watch. Watch what is said about the greatness of Jesus Christ. And then at the end, you tell me if it has nothing to do with your life. Okay? There's my challenge to you. So let's look at these quotations. There are several sections here. In fact, there are seven Old Testament quotations. One of the things you'll see as we walk through the book of Hebrews, the author of the book of Hebrews loves sections of seven. In fact, I didn't say it last week, but there were actually seven statements said about Jesus Christ in verses one through four. This is an ongoing pattern. It's a very Jewish way of communicating lumping things together according to sevens or tens or fourteens. It was a way that authors could draw attention to what they were doing. And so we're going to look at these seven things. First of all, look at verse 5. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have become your father. So there's the first Old Testament quote. 
It is a quote from Psalm chapter 2, verse 7. And the context of this quote is that the Son is greater than all things. Now we have to enter a bit of a Jewish mindset here. We have to think of a Jewish household. Within the Jewish household, there were rankings, okay? Of ultimate importance and ultimate authority was the father. The father had the authority over the house. The the father controlled the household. Within the household, then, you had children and you had servants. And in that household, the firstborn son had the next authority under the father. And then the other children, and especially the other servants, were somewhere way down below. So we have to enter into that mindset because it's that picture that the author is tying into to point out the error that the Jewish people were struggling with with their concept of angels. And so here he talks about this context from chapter or from Psalms, you are my son, today I have become your father, where the father is declaring to a son, you are my son, that means you have authority. Now this is what's known as a messianic psalm. By the time that this is being written in Hebrews, people understood this was talking about the coming Messiah. And so the author of Hebrews is saying, look, God calls the Messiah his son. Now let's look at the next quote. Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. There again, that's coming out of 2 Samuel 7.14, if you ever want to look it up. Again, there's that idea of God appointing, calling, naming somebody his son. And the context is of God raising up the son with an eternal house. This is not a temporary thing. This is a Messiah having the sonship authority over an eternal house. And the way Jewish people would quote the Old Testament often is that they would quote a phrase and know that the people hearing good Jewish people would have known this, that when you quote a phrase, you're bringing in the whole context of that. Because they would have known their Old Testament so well that immediately their minds would have started quoting the passages. That's how well they knew their Old Testament. So I challenge you, as you study Hebrews on your own, anytime there's an Old Testament quote, go back and read it. And not just the quote, but read the context around it. Say, what is the author in that Old Testament passage talking about? It's very helpful. So here the main point is that Jesus is the Son. He will reign forever. Now let's go on to verse 6. And again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Now the author's building an argument, so we have to follow the argument here. This comes out of Psalm 97, verse 7, or maybe Deuteronomy 32, 43. They're very similar wordings. Uh, And it's about other gods, other created, or actually not created, other heavenly entities, real or fake, but they all worship God. It's putting things in perspective and saying, wait a minute, anything else that is not God exists, if it's a real thing, to worship God. So here's the beginning. He's building this argument. And the point is that everything worships God. And then he goes on, verse 7, And speaking of the angels, he says, He makes his angels spirits and his servants flames of fire. This comes out of Psalm 104, verse 4. It's a psalm about God's work in creation. And it links the angels with created things. And the point here is that God made creation not to be greater than himself, but to be an agent of himself. 
He uses creation. He uses created things as his servants, his agents, his messengers. Again, tying into that household idea, saying, let's get this straight. God is the Father. Jesus is the Son. The angels are just servants. And then we get into verses 8 and 9. But about the Son, he says, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. This quote is coming out of... Oh, I don't have it in my notes. (laughs) Verses 8 and 9. Sorry about that. Uh, This is coming out of Psalm 45, verses 6 and 7. And the context is the majesty of the Lord's anointed. The majesty of the Messiah that is to come and the fact that his reign will endure forever. And then he goes on, verses 10 through 12, and he's going to compare this again to the angels. In the beginning, Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hand. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will roll them up like a robe, like a garment. They will be changed, but you will remain the same and your years will never end. Again, there's a comparison. He says, look, all created things have a sense of being changeable or temporary. Yet God rules forever. And so in this progression, he now comes to the seventh point, which is the most important. Verse 13, Jesus is greater than the angels because he is God's son reigning on God's throne. And the context of this is Psalm 110. I'm going to invite you to turn there. Psalm 110. And the reason I want you to turn there is that this is the foundational passage for just about everything in the book of Hebrews. The author of the book of Hebrews will come back to Psalm 110 again and again. And so I want to look at it. Just three verses. It's not a long psalm, but I just want to pull out verses 1, 2, and then 4. Let's start with verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Now, by the time, again, of the author of Hebrews and the writing of Hebrews, this had been known as a messianic prophecy. And the author is tying into this and saying, look, the Lord calls someone else a Lord. There is an equating of this person with God. That's the thinking that the author of Hebrews is tying into. And going, see, because they struggled with saying Jesus was God. That didn't fit with the Old Testament. There's only one God. And the author of Hebrews is going and and saying, even there, there were inklings that this was possible. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. To sit at the right hand of the Father is to have equal authority with the Father. So here the household is changed because the Son is not under the Father. The Son is equal to the Father. So the author of Hebrews is building this argument. There is a different difference. The Son is the great message that God, with all of His authority, all of His majesty, has come as the Messiah. Then look at verse 2. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. So here this Lord that was spoken to by God, that has equal authority with God, is reigning. He is spoken of as a king. 
Now, that was pretty easily uh, digestible by the Jewish people. They assumed the Messiah would be a king. But then he looked down to verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. We're not going to go into Melchizedek now. We'll talk about that later in Hebrews. But here we have someone equal to God who is a king reigning on a throne and is also a priest. That concept did not mesh with Jewish thinking whatsoever. A king was not allowed to be a priest. They were two completely separate things. David and his lineage were the kings. They were not allowed to go into the tabernacle or the temple and offer sacrifices. Only the priests could do that. The priests were of the tribe of Levi. They were not allowed to sit on the throne. It was a separation of authority. And here the author is tying into this psalm and saying, look, God told us about this. One would come of equal authority with God who was a king and a priest. Hold on to that as we walk through the rest of Hebrews in the coming months because that idea is going to come up again and again. Let's go back to Hebrews chapter 1. Verse 14, he sums this up. Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? And here's what the author does. He says, don't miss this. The point of the angels were to serve God. Jesus is God. You don't worship the servant. The servant's just a signpost pointing to something greater. Now again, I don't know how many of you here struggle with this. I will say if you come out of a Catholic background, there is a large tradition in Catholicism of praying to saints and talking about angels and maybe praying to angels. This is a good passage to go to to say, don't do that. God's word says, we go to the Son, Jesus Christ. We don't go through saints. We don't go through angels. They were merely servants for their time and their place, and they were amazing for what God did through them, but we don't worship them, and we don't worship through them. We worship God through the Son, Jesus Christ. But I want to go back to defining moments. Because a defining moment has a tendency to color things that come after it, either for good or for bad. And sometimes a defining moment can trap us in a way of thinking. And that's what happened to the Jewish nation so often. Their concept of what God did on Mount Sinai, this amazing thing, became a limiting factor. That's always the way God would work. And so when Jesus Christ came along and said, all of that points to me, they said, no, we're stuck back here. I think we do that in our own lives. Let me tell you a story. When I was a a young youth pastor in Chicago, I had a father come to me. This guy had gotten saved at a young age. He was a wonderful man. Had a couple teenage kids. He had gotten saved at a young age and then wandered away from the Lord. He had lived a life of rebellion and sin. Later on in his life, God reached out to him and he came back to Christ. And and he was living just a wonderful Christian life and God was working in him and in his family and he had become part of the church and was really uh, helpful in the youth ministry. But he came to me one day and he said, Dave, I'm going to call him John. That's not his name. But he, he said, Dave, 
we need to do an outreach for the youth. I remember when I was saved. He said, we had this, this big revival. And we had a big revival speaker came in and it was a big event and we had all these crazy fun games. And this guy came in and just gave the gospel and gave an altar call and that's how I got saved. Now you might be thinking, what's wrong with that? Nothing. Nothing's wrong with that. But as I processed this, I thought, number one, he didn't stick with it. Number two, times had changed. You see, the big gospel push where people come forward and they pray a sinner's prayer and then they go out and we mark the check boxes on our belt, three saved, five saved, ten saved. It didn't work anymore because people needed a relationship. They weren't just looking for a truth to accept. They wanted something to relate to, something to sink their teeth into. And I started telling him this. I said, look, we're going to give the gospel through relationships. We want to make sure we don't just get them saved and get them out the door. We want to build the relationship. And he said, no, 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 this was great. It'll work again. I said, okay, look, if you want to do it, go for it. You know what happened? Big event. Lots of energy. A little bit of money. Big speaker came in, fire and brimstone. He preached the gospel. It's a friend of my friend John's. Gave the altar call. Not a single person went forward. Meanwhile, for months and weeks, we had been talking about the gospel. People were growing in their faith. Friends were coming to know the Lord through the day-to-day, week-to-week youth group that we were building relationships in. Here's my point. Was what that guy went through as a child with that big revival style evangelism, was it bad? No. Did God use it? Absolutely. Was that always the way God worked? No. That's where we have to be careful about our defining moments. How often do you walk into a church? Maybe you came in here today and you listen to the music and you say, this is not my worship music. If you're used to very traditional hymns and, and they're doing more contemporary styles, you, you can't worship like this. I went to a conference once with a young friend who was also a pastor, and it was a very traditional hymn-based conference. But I loved it because it was hymns with passion. It was all guys, and everybody was singing their lungs out and really focusing on the words, and it was amazing. It was just such a powerful experience, and I'm going, this is awesome. And we get done, and he walks out, and he goes, I don't even think it's right to worship that way. <laughs> I thought, really? Just because it's different than what you've been through? Now, the flip side is also true. How many people go to a contemporary worship service where there's good songs, good truth in the songs, but they're more upbeat and maybe there's a drum, maybe even, God forbid, an electric guitar. And people go, you can't worship that way. Where's the organ? It was good enough for Paul. It's good enough for me. We allow these things to get us stuck. Now, maybe for you, it was something bad that happened. Maybe you accepted Christ at a younger age. And you went through a time in your life of questioning and doubting and you're saying God's not working here and that becomes your defining moment. Either God's not strong enough or there is no God and and you get stuck there and everything after that gets reinterpreted through that lens of that defining moment and you say, I can not trust. 
look back at what is said about Jesus Christ. He is equal in authority to God. He is over the household of God. He reigns eternally over all things. You and everybody else and everything in all creation were created to worship Him. None of our defining moments changes that one bit. We have to make sure that we are coming back to the truth about Jesus Christ and not allowing our experiences to define who he is. We have to let him define himself. And all of this prepares us for chapter 2, verse 1. The greatness of the message. Let me read for us verses 1 through 4. We must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. Let me read that again. We must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. For since the message spoken through angels was binding, and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? This salvation which was first announced by the Lord was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also testified to it by signs and wonders and various miracles and the gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. I'm not sure the author could have come up with stronger language in verse 1. We must pay more and the most careful attention. Therefore, saying based on all of this, based on the truth that was there in the Old Testament, based on the importance that the Jewish people put on that, he says, if you thought that was important, how much more so the message of the Son? And he says, we must pay attention. This is the first of several warning passages in the book of Hebrews. There are four totals, 2, 1 through 4, and then 3, 7 through 4, 13, chapter 5, verse 11 through chapter 6, verse 12, chapter 10, 19 through 39, and chapter 12, 14 through 29. Did you get all that? Yeah. We'll get there. We'll cover them. But chapter 2, verses 1 through 4 is the first of them, and this is what the author does. He teaches things, usually about Jesus Christ, and then he gives a warning. He says, because this is true, we need to be careful. And the picture, again, that the author ties into, and I've shared this before, and it will come up again and again and again. We have to picture the Israelites going through the desert. They were saved and brought out of Egypt, this big defining moment of salvation in their life. Say, this was God. He appeared to them on the mountain. He defined the relationship with them. He called them into that relationship, clarified the relationship, communicated with them. And then there they were walking through the desert and there was this hope, this future hope. One day we'll get to the promised land. But they were living between those two moments. And they were struggling. And the history of the Old Testament is rich with stories of God's miraculous deliverance, but also their struggles. And so often along the way, in the wilderness, many people doubted and even said, I want to go back to Egypt. I want to go back to what I know. I don't want to follow God. I don't believe in this. I don't trust that any 
more. And the author of Hebrews is calling the church and saying, you too have a defining moment. Jesus Christ saved you. You are saved by him. You are righteous in Christ. You have been set free and brought to new life. Your journey has begun. You have a future hope. Jesus Christ is coming back. We will be with him forever, but you live in the difficulty of the now. And it's very easy to drift. We must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. What are some ways that we drift? You know, it's not unlike the New Testament church. We drift by believing in being a Christian and. And anytime you put an and on the gospel or on your Christianity, you are in danger of drifting. Well, I believe in Christ and philosophy. I believe in Christ and Hinduism. I believe in Christ and postmodernism. I am a Christian and whatever it is. And we put those things as being equal to our relationship with Christ and it pulls us off course. We drift when we want to go back to Egypt. We drift when we look at our situation and we're following Christ and we see how hard it is and we feel the pull of our culture. And we say, if I just Just little ways. Is it really that big a deal if we just take that truth and change it because it'll be more acceptable to our culture and frankly, it'll be a whole lot easier for us? Couldn't we just change that? And we need to hear Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1. No. Pay careful attention. Don't drift away. For them, it was the pressure to go back to their Jewish religion. By this point... The Christians, even the Jewish Christians, it appears, were no longer allowed to go to the synagogue. The Jewish religious leaders had recognized the the dissension in the ranks that these followers of Christ were causing troubles. And early on, they still met in the synagogues and worshipped with their families. They could have been there with their brothers and sisters, aunts and uncles. But it appears by this point, they were no longer welcomed in the synagogue. And so not only did they have to separate themselves from their culture, but from their traditional religion and maybe even from their own families. Can you imagine the pull? Some of you probably can. Because some of you experienced that when you came to know Christ. And the author is saying, don't do it. As good as it looks, as comfortable as it might feel, don't go back. And now he's going to compare these two messages For since the message spoken through the angels was binding and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? The Old Testament was binding. The law was binding in the sense that it it told them what their relationship with God was going to look like. It contained promised blessings, but also promised punishments. And they took that very seriously. We have examples in the New Testament of the Pharisees who sometimes took it a little too far. We have others like the Sadducees or some of the Herodians that maybe didn't take it far enough. But there was within Jewish understanding an understanding that this was serious. There was a covenant, contractual, binding relationship. And so the author says, if that was binding, how much more so 
the message and the covenant that comes through Jesus Christ. We need to understand this. It is in Christ and in Christ alone that we can be saved. The Bible is very clear about that. Which necessarily means that apart from Christ, there is no salvation. That does not preach well in our culture today. That's not going to make you popular among your friends. Apart from Christ, there is only death. We need to pay a careful attention then to the gospel of life through Jesus Christ. And so they ask the question, how shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? The only way for the Israelites to get to the promised land was to trust God, to trust that relationship, and keep on following Him. The only way we spend eternity with Christ is to trust Christ. We can't ignore that. We can't turn away from this message of salvation to anything else and think that there is any hope there. The Old Testament law described God's goodness. But Jesus showed it. That's why the salvation is great. The Old Testament law allowed God's presence to live among His people right there in the tabernacle and eventually in the temple. He was right there with Him, but there was always a separation. And then Jesus comes and He's Emmanuel, God with us. And when He dies, Matthew 27, 51 states, at that moment the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The separation was gone. That's why this salvation is greater. The Old Testament law pointed out our sin. And it called us to be righteous, to seek to live up to this standard. Christ took our sin, paid the price, and he makes us righteous. That's a better salvation. We cannot move away from that and think that anything else can save us. And then he gives a confirmation here at the end of verse 3 and going into verse 4. This salvation which was first announced by the Lord was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Again, he's tying into the Old Testament history. The Jewish people would have said, wait a minute. We've heard about the thunder. We've heard about the lightning. We heard about the smoke on Mount Sinai. We heard about the very voice of God. Are you saying Jesus is greater? Because where is the confirmation? And the author of Hebrews is saying, well, it's everywhere. Haven't you heard the stories about Jesus Christ raising the dead? About him healing the sick? Giving sight to the blind? Have you heard about what the apostles did? Have you heard about the tongues of fire that rested on their head and how they spoke in tongues? Have you heard about the miracles in the early church? See, we sometimes gloss over those. But that was God's way of putting a stamp in history. I am doing something amazing. Don't miss it. There were confirming signs everywhere. So what do we do with this? We need to recognize that we still drift. We are always, constantly in danger of drifting away from the gospel. Which is why as a church, and I hope as individuals, we are constantly coming back to God's word and coming back to the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
You might say, wait a minute, we've heard that before. I mean, come on, let's talk about something else. We need to talk about other things, but it all has to be rooted in and based on the gospel. We need to be careful that we don't add to the gospel, that we don't put our tradition over the gospel. We need to be careful that we are paying close attention. The Hebrews had lists of things that they might have considered or been tempted to consider greater than Christ. Angels was just one of them. The author is going to go through a whole bunch of other ones. What's your list? What are those things that tug at your heart that you're tempted to put in the place of Christ as giving satisfaction or healing or salvation or happiness? Whatever it is, I think we all have lists. We need to remember Christ blows that list away. He is greater than anything we run to. And as we walk through Hebrews, we need to take the greatness of Christ being described to those Jewish early believers and apply it to us today and say, we have the same Savior. He is still great and always will be great. I don't know what your defining moments are. I don't know what they were. But don't let them become so narrow that they keep you from experiencing the truth of Jesus Christ. Instead, look at them as messengers that God can use along the way of your life to point you to him. Because he is the great message of salvation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, I pray that you would forgive us for diminishing the greatness of the message of salvation. Father, we speak about it in classrooms and from pulpits. We talk about it on Sundays. We meet together in small groups and hopefully continue to speak about it. But I wonder, does it seep into our day-to-day lives? On Monday morning, is there a drift? As Saturday rolls around, have we forgotten? And so I pray, Father, may we heed the warning that we would care that we would pay the most careful attention to the salvation that we have through Jesus Christ. Help us to see those areas of drift. Help us to see the things that we're tempted to put in the place of greatest importance in our lives and convince us through the power of your word. Open our eyes to see the great truth that Jesus Christ is greater than anything else. We pray this in his name. Amen.